0: So if you've got your Bible, let's go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 2, and we are putting our eyes on the Lord God. And it's an interesting way that the writer of Ecclesiastes goes about that. The, the book of Ecclesiastes is a journey whereby the preacher, who is Solomon, the king over Israel, is trying to make a quest for meaning in life. The main character of this interesting story, the man who calls himself the preacher, is still in the early stages of an experiment whereby he's trying to learn from personal experience whether meaning and satisfaction and contentment can be found apart from God and apart from the commands that he has given to his people. So in a a really strange twist we're gonna seek God by looking away from Him in a way. By looking to the world to see if satisfaction can be found apart from the Lord God Himself. And by turning our eyes from the Lord God intends to reveal to us the weakness of the world and its deficiencies so that in our dissatisfaction with the ways that the world says we can be fulfilled and we can find meaning, we will turn our eyes back more passionately to the Lord God and seek Him all the greater. So he begins this test by trying to quench his own hunger for wisdom, hoping that perhaps gaining incredible amounts of knowledge might help him to feel as though his life is significant as if he had purpose and direction and meaning. And all the preacher discovered in that first attempt is how man's knowledge is so far inferior to God's knowledge that no matter how hard he tried, he could not find contentment there. He could not find meaning in the things that he came to know. And last week, the preacher shifted his focus away from wisdom and put it on pleasure. He decided to put pleasure and delight to the test. If the mind could not satisfy his quest for meaning, then maybe the heart could. Maybe the desires of the, 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 um, the human will could. His quest again came up short. But we know that pleasure is sought in various ways. So here as chapter 2 continues to unfold, the preacher is going to consider whether man can find meaning and fulfillment in the kind of pleasure that we get specifically from possessions, from the things of the world. As we progress through verses 4 through 11 this morning, we will first see that Solomon's pursuit of happiness by way of possessions takes on four distinct phases. Then having accumulated more than anyone else could claim to have accumulated in the entire world, having truly given his, this way of life a try, a true try, in verse 9 the preacher is going to begin to reflect upon what he learned from this experience. Where has all this wealth brought him And whether he's any closer to answering those heavy, weighty questions of life. Why am I here? How can I be satisfied? What is true happiness? And so we're going to start today with verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. We're going to examine that section and then we're going to progress through together. Verse 4. The preacher of Ecclesiastes says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Let's stop right there. Here we see that the preacher has made great works. This is one of the ways that we seek fulfillment in possessions, by accomplishing amazing and noteworthy things. Whether it is right or wrong, a person is often measured by what they worked hard to accomplish in this life. The first possession that Solomon speaks of pursuing here is an impressive resume of things that he diligently sought to create for himself that were each aimed at fulfilling that longing for meaning and purpose in his heart. In doing so, the preacher is tapping into a very common practice among men. And it's something we see evidence of in our world today. And I want to caution this church as we think about materialism. It is so common for us to externalize this problem and to think that, yes, we live in this America where so many people are pursuing material satisfaction. And oh, how shallow that is, and I'm glad I'm not one of those people. We would be dangerously ignorant if we did not turn the lens upon ourselves here today and really consider whether we are finding too much of our satisfaction in the material things of this world. Don't dismiss this as everyone else's problem. We live in one of the wealthiest nations that the history of earth has ever known. This is a serious issue for many, even among those who have given their lives to Christ and are populating God's true church. And so let me give you some examples of the way that people today pursue material wealth in hopes that these achievements, these great things that they have built or made, might satisfy them and give them purpose. How many TV shows are on your glowing box right now about home improvement and about how you could buy an old house and customize it, make it exactly the way you want it to be. How many of us have embarked upon huge renovation projects in our own homes? We've lived uncomfortably for months at a time while our kitchen was upside down. We've washed dishes in the bathroom sink trying to restore our house or make it nicer so it would fit our desires, so it would be the, the house that we really want to live in, our dream home. We often think that if we can build for ourselves our own little castle, that we can maximize the enjoyment we get out of this life. And we might be closer to becoming that happy person we really want to be. Others try to build their own personal image. Rather than building their home, they're looking at their physique. They're spending hours and hours in the gym. They are spending countless dollars on their wardrobe. They're spending an hour each day in front of the mirror putting on makeup and making sure that they look exactly the way they want the world to perceive them. How much time do we spend in building an image that we want the world to not only accept but to love and to appreciate? For others, and this might seem like a a far more noble goal, the thing that we're trying to build to fulfill ourselves is our family. We look at our kids and we want to see them excel and we put them into so many programs and we we want to see them do great at school so we're constantly encouraging them and pressing them on and helping them with their schoolwork. We want to see them grow up to be responsible young men and women. Of course we want them to trust Jesus Christ. We want to see the gospel alive in them. And so we build these families and we put so much time and effort into them. And And many times that we make the mistake of thinking that how our family goes, so too does our fulfillment go. That if we're going to be fulfilled, then, then all of our kids have got to be just in line. They can't be making Too much noise. They can't be annoying anyone. They have to be exactly like we hope them to be, these good little obedient children that aren't rebelling against us. We want our spouse to to meet our needs. And so we build up these families in hopes that they will fulfill us. For others, we we get a thrill and a joy out of creating innovations, of learning better ways to hack life and to think about the way we go about our business. We see some of that in Solomon here as he discusses the, the kinds of Pools that he creates to overcome the fact that these trees he wants to build don't have the right irrigation. So he builds pools that will feed these trees and, and will give them life. And, and, and people, I think, often become very satisfied with their ability to innovate and to bring new ideas to society, to make the world a better place. We want to create, don't we? we were made in the image of a creator God. Was not man initially given a mandate again and again and again through Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to multiply and to fill the earth with the human beings that they have helped to create? So creation is a part of who we are, I think. But it's not always easy to discern whether our desire to build and to create is noble or presumptuous. Is our yearning to make life into what we want it to be obedience to God and His command to be fruitful and multiply? Or are we expressing the same discontent that Adam and Eve did when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and determined to be like God, desiring to express the freedom and power that really only belonged to Him? They wanted to make good and evil what they wanted it to be. And so man has, in some ways, through this desire to create and to make the world his oyster, his oyster, has desired to move away from a God who says, the world is what I have made it to be. Man's heart wants to create the world they want it to be. We see that Solomon excelled at great works as he puts this idea to the test that we can be fulfilled by our accomplishments. He built houses. You can read about the grandeur of his palace in 1 Kings chapter 7, about how he spared no expense on the home that he lived in. Uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines would have nothing on him, right? He built this thing out of cedar wood, which was very rare and uh, smelled beautifully and and, and it was very attractive. It had hand-cut stones, precision design. It was a palace truly fit for a king. He created for himself vineyards, which were so often a mark of a wealthy established man. A man who had great abundance of wealth would make for himself vineyards. It wasn't necessarily a crop that was essential to life, but it was a crop that could be cultivated in such a way that you could make wine with it. Now life is more than just getting by. Now you're enjoying life. Now you're celebrating with wine. And so he made vineyards for himself. He had gardens and parks and orchards built to his specifications. He made these engineering innovations to show his wisdom could be made a reality through the people that he directed and the work that they did. Israel itself reached its economic and political peak under Solomon's leadership. The whole nation benefited from the productivity of this wise man. Because the preacher of Ecclesiastes is essentially a ghost writer for King Solomon, we understand the temple of God to be his crowning achievement. David was not able to build God a temple, but his son Solomon fulfilled the task. And the temple, though it is not mentioned here, is mentioned later on in Ecclesiastes in chapter 5. So it is in view. What King Solomon accomplished in his time is likely more than we will ever accomplish in our own time. And yet on our own more attainable scale, we tend to assess our overall personal value by what we have been able to make happen in our lives. What have we been able to achieve? Have we been successful in the ways we desire to be successful? I have no doubt that Solomon did derive some pleasure in these great works that he accomplished. There was some joy to building these things and seeing them realized. Also in dreaming them up. Don't you have fun thinking about things you might be able to accomplish in the future and planning for them and and setting goals for yourself. There's a lot of joy to be had in dreaming about what you might be able to accomplish one day. But the preacher does not say that any of these great works quenched his appetite for meaning and for significance. Great works are not enough to definitively satisfy the heart of man when we think of the great works that man can accomplish, my mind goes to one that I will never be able to accomplish myself. Is there anything more impressive, is there any more noble building project than growing a human being in your human body? Women who have had babies, think about that great accomplishment. Nine months of incubating a human being that starts off as the smallest minute organism A mother is going to accommodate that new one. She's going to allow her own body to be displaced. She's going to have to eat for two. She's going to have to deal with nausea and short sleep and constant running to the bathroom. She's going to look forward eagerly to this new arrival, imagining what they will become, imagining what wonderful joys she will experience from this great gift that comes from the hand of God. And then that day comes, and labor is complete. Everything checks out fine. Mom and dad take that baby home to a safe, quiet house and you'd expect just fountains and fountains of joy. But often, the opposite is the case. Before too long, that mom who expected to feel elation and joy and delight in her precious little baby begins to feel sad. Some women in this room have probably experienced that. There's almost a sense of depression that begins to creep in could there be a more noble and beautiful creation that man could make than another human being? But even in that wonderful context, that blessed-by-God context, there can be this sense of almost unfulfillment after a child comes. It's called postpartum depression. It begins to cast a shadow on the heart. There's no doubt that some of that is simply the body's attempt to deal with a myriad of hormones and chemicals that can overwhelm a woman's body when she goes through that wonderful miracle of physical childbirth. But I have to think that perhaps there's some existential question marks that contribute to that postpartum depression as well. Shouldn't I feel complete? Why am I still longing for something more? Shouldn't I be satisfied in, in this wonderful gift? I'm so prepared. How can I be afraid that that the world's going to hurt this child? That That this This parenthood that I want to give for them won't be enough or that, that the world will somehow spoil this magical blessing. We sometimes feel a very palpable sense of letdown after we finish a great task or accomplish something extraordinary. Is this indicative of these kinds of accomplishments not being able to satisfy the mind of man in which God has put eternity? There's actually a term that has been coined to describe this feeling of letdown. It's called summit syndrome. It is partly a natural response that makes a person who's worked so hard to accomplish something great then take a time to rest and relax. But it's partly because the mind is trying to come to terms with the fact that this accomplishment which took so much of their efforts is in in relation to the rest of the world actually quite small. In the relationship of the rest of time and and the existence of man is usually not that great of a deal. And so man is humbled at the scale of their accomplishments and how surprisingly these great works don't solve our longing for greater meaning in life. And so the preacher of Ecclesiastes sees this in verses 4 through 6. And then in verse 7, the preacher bought many things. He took the money and the resources that he had and began to just purchase different items that he thought might bring him satisfaction and joy. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. It shouldn't be hard for us to relate to this drive to get more, although what Solomon buys is not what we would buy today. We live in a society that is, however, driven by the want for material wealth. Many typically view what, what they have, what they possess, as a form of power. The more we have, the more we continue to get what we want. If I have a great reserve of savings, then whenever something pops up that I would like, I just go out and I buy it. I get it for myself. That seems like power to a man. Solomon's wealth abounds, so he spends it to get the things that he thinks will make him happy and bring him joy and meaning. And so he buys male and female slaves here. The freedom to buy makes us feel powerful and what Solomon chooses to buy I think may be an indication that he also wants to feel powerful. He wants to be able to use the strength of many men to accomplish these great tasks that he talked about in the first few verses. The use of slave labor might have been necessary for these temples and the buildings of these uh, these dwelling places and orchards. One of the uncounted costs of materialism is that in order to get what we want... Usually someone else needs to not get what they want. We get a good deal on something, but that means that somebody else got less value than what they should have for what they sold to you. We're constantly trying to to find ways to get more, even if that means we outsource everything and pay people less to make it. Even if that means we're comfortable with other people living in, in, in lower quality of health so that we can buy things cheaply. We don't often think about those things. But our desire and drive for wealth and more usually means somebody else is going to have less. Solomon points out the abundance of herds and flocks that he came to acquire. And livestock in Old Testament language is often one of the greatest marks of currency. If a person was wealthy, they had to have many head of of cattle. Flocks and herds represented provision. They represented security. The more someone had, the more ready they would be for whatever life threw at them, the more safe they would be. If there was a famine, if there was a problem with the crops, if they had herds, if they had livestock, then they could get through that. It represented safety to them and security against life's variables. Remember one of the themes of Ecclesiastes is struggling with this inability to control life the way we want to. That though we try to grasp life and make it what we desire, it slips through our fingers like vanity, like a mist. The human heart wants to rely on no one else, wants to be able to supply its own needs. But do we have that kind of power really? Apart from God, can any amount of money truly insure us against the variables that inevitably face against us in this world? I think we would be doing ourselves a huge disservice if in considering the wisdom of Solomon, it does not bring to mind examples of Jesus' wisdom. That speaks to the things that Solomon is wrestling with right now. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Luke chapter 12 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 12. In the chapter that precedes 12, in chapter 11, Jesus is pointing out what a wicked generation Israel has produced. It's full of men and women who demand a sign, but God has produced signs and wonders and miracles through his ministry right before their eyes, and they're refusing to see it. They're refusing to accept it. He spoke of the sign of Jonah. We've talked about that just recently about that that pointed to the three days that Jesus would spend in the grave before he resurrected but it also spoke about the impending judgment for all who refuse God's redemption for all who refuse to repent. Do you remember when King Solomon mentions the Queen of Sheba and he says something very controversial in chapter 11 verse 31 stay in chapter 12 but just, just for some background here verse 31 he says the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. So we have this wonderful book of Ecclesiastes which is very, very useful in teaching us about the ways of the world and making us think through the difficult questions that are before us in life. But there is one greater than Solomon. And we should pay attention to his wisdom as well. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And his wisdom is of even more value than what we learn in Ecclesiastes. So we would do well to interpret the things that we learn in Ecclesiastes from the words of Jesus. To be honest, the words of Ecclesiastes are Christ's words as well. Because all of the word belongs to Jesus. But let's take a look at chapter 12 of Luke and hear what Jesus has to say about the accumulation of wealth. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother... This is in verse 13, by the way, of chapter 12 of Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What the man thought was his security was nothing more than vapor, vanity. He counted on that wealth to get him through the next several years. And he figured that all of his efforts had earned him the right to be idle, to rest on his laurels, to coast through the next several years. And yet the Lord God knows better. This wealth of his was not insurance against what was to come. He had no control about the end of his days. And his thoughts were only for himself. He was not thinking of ways that he might live in in glory and in, in honor to the Lord God who provided this amazing crop in the first place. There's a song uh, by a group that I really enjoy, a worship band called King's Kaleidoscope, just recently came out. It's called Aimless Night. And it talks about the futile ways that man tries to satisfy his own soul. So it coincides really well with what we're learning here in Ecclesiastes. And one of the lines continues to come up to my mind when I'm studying in Ecclesiastes. He says, So where does the garden blossom deep within my soul. All I know is striving for this harvest of fool's gold. You know what fool's gold is? If you've ever spent time down on the beaches of the Delta, you've seen plenty of it. Fool's gold is this shiny, pretty material called pyrite. And it's found mixed throughout many of the sands in our region here. And when I was a child, I used to think, this is real gold. If I can collect enough of this stuff, I can buy a Nintendo finally and be like my friends. And so I remember being out at a beach one time and sifting through and carefully trying to pluck these tiny little shiny pieces of what appeared to be gold out of a handful of sand and putting it in a tiny little cup. And uh, my stepdad came up and saw me doing it, and he just laughed and turned around and let me continue trying. Eventually, he came up after quite a while and said, I hate to break your heart, buddy, but that's not going to get you a Nintendo. It's actually quite worthless. It might seem to be valuable. But in reality, nobody wants it. The idea that owning a great many things can plug the hole in our happiness bucket is nothing more than a fable. It is a powerful fable. It is an overwhelmingly popular fable. But one that will prove to us time and time again, material wealth will never be enough. The abundant life that so many are yearning for is not about the quantity of goods that we can call our own. Here in the second portion of verse 7, we also get our first glimpse of a key component of the possessions game. When you start to live for your possessions, how does that affect you? How does the preacher describe how it affects you? He says that he had collected more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. You start to see the way that's impacting his view of others. When our possessions begin to serve as our sense of meaning or accomplishment, it will inevitably stir in us a natural inclination towards covetousness and comparison. I sure do like what I have. In fact, I love what I have. But is it as good as what she has? Would I be happier if I had what he's got? That's one of the problems with possessions, friends. There's always something better to get. How long will I enjoy the things that I have purchased? To please my desires, only as long as it takes to see someone else enjoying something that I don't have in my own possession. We continue on to verse 8, which tells us that the preacher gathered rare items. Not only did he purchase things for himself, but he got things that other people could not lay their hands upon. Perhaps verse 7 focuses more on quantity of goods, while verse 8 is making us think about the quality of goods or the rareness of goods. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Treasure by its very nature is something rare and exclusive. There is an allure to gaining something that not everyone can have. Silver and gold are both precious metals, not something that the average Israelite would have owned too much of. That, of course, is why God instructed Moses to include so much of uh, so much gold and silver in the construction of the tabernacle, the holy tent of God, and in its furniture, the implements that filled it, to remind the people of Israel how holy and set-apart God is. So that which should be used in honor of the Most High God, the preacher has gained much of that same substance to satisfy himself. In addition, on Solomon's payroll are gifted singers, performers, both male and female voices that can sing glorious melodies and provide personal concerts for the preacher. He gets to enjoy beautiful sounds that others can't just hear whenever they want to. The iPod was not yet invented. And so man could not just hear a beautiful concert at a whim. But here Solomon has loads of singers that at a whim can come into his chambers and sing to him and, and give him satisfaction and enjoyment. He's able to tap into the finer things of life at will, thanks in part to these great resources that he has collected for himself. And of course, he doesn't fail to mention the extensive harem of women, no doubt beautiful, no doubt exotic and unique in the rareness of their features that he counted among his concubines. Again, friends, the main character of Ecclesiastes is not doing things here that we should think of as acceptable or pleasing to God. This is not an example for us to follow. He is trying life the world's way and he is hoping to help us avoid falling into the same pitfalls. This aspect is not hypothetical for Solomon who we know historically had 300 wives and 700 concubines. The allure of physical pleasure is not something that most men can satiate whenever they want. Many fantasize about how fulfilled they would be if they could. Let the example of Solomon's dissatisfaction at attaining this rare freedom remind us that fornication apart from the loving covenant of marriage is not only a sin, it is also not a recipe for true lasting satisfaction. It's all too easy to be convinced that your contentment will increase if you get the things that not many other people can get. But the preacher is proving to us that those pursuits are vanity. And in verse 9 we learn that the preacher... Became great. Not only did he attain things, but he attained favor in the eyes of others. His reputation is in view here. The way that others perceived him, in verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Recall that the preacher we are reading about began this experiment with a solid understanding that the true meaning of life comes from God Himself. That would Mean that each of these worldly experiences, these escapades that he is going on, putting wisdom above everything, trying to see if pleasure could satisfy him, looking for contentment and material wealth, each of these escapades would only make him become less great compared to the standards of God's holiness. So this greatness that he's talking about is not greatness in the eyes of God, it is greatness in the eyes of other men. When the preacher says that he became great, he can only be speaking of a worldly greatness we see again an element of competition in the preacher, that covetousness, that comparison between himself and others. Like all who aim to satisfy their hearts with material goods and possessions, the one who would become wealthy almost has to get some satisfaction from comparing what he has to what others don't have. In 2018, there was a study by Andrew Jebb, who's a doctoral student in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Purdue drew a lot of attention. There were many articles written about this study. He sought to quantify just how much money a person should make in order to maximize their happiness. He was putting to test this theory that the more you get, you don't necessarily get happier. And so he ran extensive polls and, and, and examined many, many different people at different stratas of economic wealth. And the determination that he and his team came to was that for America, about $75,000 worth of income is what you really want to make if you want to be happy in life. Now I don't believe that. I don't think that's true at all. I, don't, I think this presupposes that an amount of money is really what gets you happiness. So that goes in with a, an inherent bias that money is the thing that satisfies. But what was interesting to me was the second half of this study identified why people who had more money didn't get happier. And the conclusion that, that he drew from this study is that the more money that you get, your basic needs are all met. You don't have to worry about them anymore. And now it's just about showing off to other people. Now you're just trying to outrace the Joneses. And that comes with inherent dissatisfaction with what you have. You're constantly looking beyond. You're not just trying to survive. You're trying to exceed others who are in this race with you. And so the things that you have accumulated, the things that at one time were perhaps enjoyable... As soon as you begin to see what other people have and the accomplishments that they have been able to accomplish, you begin to think you have to have more. You need better. You need greater things. And so satisfaction tends to go down the more money a person has. Solomon's wealth and spending power is so unmatched that if wealth and material possessions are the metric by which we measure greatness, he has surpassed all who were before him. That specifically refers to David, his father. specifically refers to Saul, the first king of Israel, but it could also refer to the other kings, secular kings that ruled the area of Jerusalem before it became God's holy city. Can an abundance of possessions satisfy? No one has been able to put that theory to the test quite like Solomon had. And having described the many different ways that he had exercised his spending power, how he had drawn the affections of others because of all that he had been able to accumulate, others for sure wished they could be as Solomon was. They wished they had the financial freedoms that he had. Still, his assessment of the situation is pretty dire. We see a reflection on all that he has accomplished in verses 9 through 11. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So here for a second time, in verse 9, the second half, Solomon assures us that his wisdom remained with him. This is a condition that makes it possible for us to trust his judgments through this adventure. Most who are drawn into the cycle of desire and then labor to get what you desire and then obtain it and then have pleasure in it and then grow bored with it and then have desire again, this great big cycle, most who get stuck in that cycle have to, to some degree, abandon reason because it is a futile cycle and in order to continue in it, you have to keep convincing yourself that the next cycle will bring you to fulfillment. The next cycle, you'll get to where you want to be. But he did this with his thinking cap on. He experienced this pleasure through goods with a clear mind, with a mind that reflected on truth. That doesn't mean he only dabbled in the idea. We see in verse 10 here, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So he's going all in in this pursuit. He hold nothing back. I think there may be a hunting allusion there to Solomon's father and mother. King David set his eyes on something that he should not have set his eyes on, right? This woman Bathsheba, who was bathing on her rooftop, and he saw her beauty, and though she was a married woman, he desired her, and it led to the greatest, darkest moment of his, of his tenure as king. He went and lay with Bathsheba. A baby was conceived. They tried to cover it up, but the truth kept coming to the surface, and eventually he ended up causing the death of Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband. That son never lived. It was stillborn. And so there was great grief and anguish over this policy of going after whatever your eyes desire and keeping nothing from your heart. The vanity of this pursuit is not because the preacher failed to get the things that he wanted. He got all the things that he wanted. He built all the things that he wanted. He got the respect and honor that he wanted. It's not because he failed at creating great and mighty works. His works were incredible. He owned whatever he desired. The vanity of this pursuit lies in the fact that man cannot be truly satisfied with any good beside God. The thing we need the most is the thing that we are not. And it is not a thing that we can obtain on our own. All of Scripture, if you think about it in grand terms, can really be divided into two types of revelation. We call them law and gospel. Much of the word is spent showing us that when we dwell in this mindset of the law, when we think that we can obtain to great things, when we believe that through our own efforts we can return to this God that our sin has separated us from, that we fall short again again. And again and again. Remember that the Apostle Paul told us that the law was like a tutor for us, it revealed sin. Law was given so that sin may, I quote, abound, right? That doesn't mean that God desired sin, but what he desired for us to see is that apart from the grace of God, sin will and must abound. The other half of Scripture can be described as gospel. The gospel is the wonderful, graceful truth that there is an alternative that if we would humble ourselves, if we would be humbled by the Spirit of God and realize that we cannot attain a relationship with the Lord God apart from His merciful hand, then He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has come and lived the perfect life that we could never live. That He has given this life as a sacrifice, willingly, dying and becoming a curse for us, being nailed to a cross, His body broken, His blood flowing out so that in His death all the sins of His chosen people would be put to death forever. That is gospel. On the third day He rose triumphant over sin and death and everyone who puts their faith in Him will benefit eternally from the sacrifice that He was willing to make. The law drives us either farther away from God or it drives us to God. When we see our inability to satisfy our hearts, to find contentment, we will either in pride pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and face more and more disappointment or the Holy Spirit will humble us and we will realize that we need to turn away from this endless, fruitless pursuit that the only true satisfaction that we can have is in Christ. So which portion would Solomon's experiment seem to exemplify? It exemplifies not the gospel but the law Here is a man who is working to try and please himself and every effort made in that regard can be nothing but disappointment. That's what the law was given for and that's where the pursuit of pleasure and possessions inevitably is destined to take us. An unsatisfaction that comes when we realize that we can't obtain that which we do not have but so desperately need. Though there was pleasure in this pursuit, and I don't want to paint the wrong picture here, it's not like all of this activity led to no smiles and fun whatsoever. That would be a lie. He enjoyed the pursuit at times. He felt some feelings of satisfaction in these sinful pursuits. But we must see that pleasure is not a sufficient target. Pleasure itself is fleeting and an unworthy aim in comparison to the eternal truths that we ought to rather be captivated with. In verse 11, Solomon considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expending, expended in doing it." His personal reflection is urging us to do the same. Brothers and sisters, count the cost today of this mindset that material wealth will bring you joy, that you will be satisfied and happy, in so much as you could obtain the things that you think will put a smile on your face and happiness in your heart. One of the costs of this pursuit is isolation. The more you compare yourselves to others, the more you divide yourself from them. The more you keep for yourself, the less compassion and generosity you have for the people around you. Note the repetition of the phrase there, for myself, in the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, enjoy yourself, how, how to cheer my body with wine, planted vineyards for myself, made myself gardens and parks, made myself pools, gathered for myself gold and silver. He's constantly thinking about himself. To pursue wealth often comes with the unseen effect of fixing your attention upon you alone. And in an ironic twist, the word vanity, which literally translates in the Hebrew here as a mist or a vapor, in the English language, we use that word to also describe one who is unhealth, uh, unhealthy in their fixation on themselves, right? Somebody who is vain, constantly looks at themselves. And that is where this pursuit of happiness through material goods inevitably leads us. Another cost is self-deception. To enjoy the mo- m- the momentary rewards of materialism, we have to hide our eyes from eternity. We have to pretend like all that matters is what is right in front of me. One of Jesus' most famous and powerful parables is the parable of the soil, in which the seed that the farmer spreads is considered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The soils that that seed lands upon represent the hearts of different individuals and the way that they re- respond to the gospel. And the fruit that eventually we hope will grow up from those seeds is the results of true faith in the life of one who believes. Matthew 13, just one portion of that parable here says, As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You might have missed that as you've read that in the past many of you are familiar with this parable what is the thing that chokes out this little seed that finds itself starting to grow but is choked out by the weeds and the thorns and the thistles that surround it the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches specifically if the things that we accumulate take our worshipful love if they distract us from focusing on the lord god we're not giving our worshipful love to the Savior. If we spend all our time or thought on our possessions, we are by default not spending that time and thought on eternal things. Life is in some ways a zero-sum game. There are only so many hours in the equation of your life. They have to be spent one way or another. And there's probably fewer than, than you think. Those hours will be used for one thing or another. But you only have so many of them. The Lord would have you use them on what really matters the Lord would have you enjoy eternal things. Things that will not pass away. Things that cannot be stolen away from you or corrupted. Things that will not come to you and then you'll realize they were falsely advertised and and not as good as you had hoped. I want to conclude by looking at a passage from Deuteronomy 17. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17 if you like. We're just going to read through it briefly. I want to set it up for you though. Israel was... Led by God. They were operating as a theocracy. God was the head of Israel. He spoke through his prophets and his judges to lead them. But the people of Israel were growing discontent. They looked around them. They compared their nation to other nations. And other nations had something they didn't have. A physical human king. So they desired a physical human king. But before that happened, back in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord had anticipated it. And he had warned them. He said in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. You see that list? You see how it is almost verbatim describing the pursuits of Solomon. How the Lord God knew that man, when he goes his own way, will seek the things that do not matter and that the affections that he has for the things that do not matter will drive the attention and the devotion away from the, from the Lord God, which should matter most to him. God knew that this would happen in his people. And so in a way, it needed to happen. Solomon shows us this discontent, because if we can't learn to not love the world like so many people love the world, then our hearts are scarcely going to turn to the Lord God. He doesn't want us to be deceived by this fabulously attractive lie that materialism can satisfy us. He desires to spare us through this one solution, through his grace. Friends, any way of life that you are trusting to give you what only Jesus can give to you is an enemy to the gospel. Any reward that you gain from that pursuit is not a reward but a curse if it keeps you from the true pursuit that God has designed you for. Do not settle For this empty happiness that the world would so gladly peddle to you. Would you bow your heads and pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the grace that you bestow upon us, your people. We ask, Lord, that you would be patient with us and that you would help us to enjoy the things that really matter in this life. Father, each one of us probably has some pursuit that is interfering with our love for you. I pray, Lord God, that you would make it clear to us that you would cause us to love it less. These are not necessarily bad things in many cases, Lord God, but they become bad for us when they eclipse the joy and the beauty of Jesus Christ and the work that he has done to atone for our souls. And so I pray, Lord God, that he would be the apple of our eye. Lord Jesus, would you be our greatest pursuit? Holy Spirit, would you help us, strengthen us in that pursuit and help us to understand how empty the ways of the world truly are. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.